Today, Lord willing, we're going to be wrapping up chapter 22, uh, paragraph 8, and just all of chapter 22 in general. Uh, this is actually our 18th, I think. Is that what you guys have, Jason? This is the 18th lecture on it. Um, I've really enjoyed this. I know I say this about every chapter we go through, um, but I know this has had a lot of um, uh, challenging things for myself to consider, I think, um, in my own life and Sabbath and how am I leading my family, my own self, how am I doing it, um, and, and it has been very enriching, uh, and I hope it has been so for you as well. Today, I want to do two things. I really only wanted to do the latter one, but I figured we would do the first one, and I wanted to go over it quickly, but it took me four pages, so we'll see how quickly we can do it. Uh, but the main thing I want us to look at is finally to ask, okay, positively, what are we supposed to be doing on the Lord's Day? Um, and more kind of in a practical, on-the-ground um, kind of a way, kind of like we did with family worship. Um, we've looked at what not to do. We've kind of talked about what to do, but then kind of more of a practical question. Okay, well, how does this, what does this look like, right, on the average Lord's Day? Uh, we want to kind to kind of define that, put some meat on that a little bit, uh, though we'll see it really, there's a lot of circumstances to take in, into consideration, um, whether you're married or not, whether um, your church has two services, right, all these things. Um, so we'll kind of take a stab at that um, and hopefully try to fill out most of that. The other thing I want to do, which we'll do first, is to look at a very important verse. Now, I don't know that I, I don't think this is the most important verse in terms of argumentation, but it has been very important in the history of the doctrine of the Sabbath from a reform perspective. It's cited in our confession. It pertains to recreations. Uh, Jason asked me when I told him I was going to be talking about recreations a while ago whether I was going to touch on this verse. Um, and in fact, even last night I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw somebody make a reference to it about the Sabbath. So we, we want to look at it because it is kind of controverted. I don't want to spend too much time. I don't want to beat a dead horse. But I realized, you know, I was going to wrap this whole thing up, but we really should deal with that verse. So uh, let's go ahead and look at it. It's Isaiah 58, particu uh, particularly verse 13. Isaiah 58, 13. This tends to be kind of a battleground verse over... Uh, recreations on the Lord's Day. Again, I don't, I personally, I, I'm, I'm glad to have it in my arsenal. I don't think I really need it. I think there's a lot of a positive case uh, for just worship being the main purpose on the Lord's Day, but it is, it is uh, a very common verse. Uh, 13 through four, uh, let's read 13 through 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasures, or talking idly, then you shall delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right. 
Well, perhaps right away you could see why this verse would be kind of a battleground in terms of recreations on the Lord's Day, because in the context it's talking not just about the Sabbath, but especially doing one's own pleasure, right? And, and particularly pleasure, uh, depending on how you take that, um, could, could encompass things like recreations, right? Um, and so you can see why this would be kind of fought over in that sense. As far as the broader context of this verse, chapter 58 is really a critique of God against Israel's failures in religion and worship of him in general. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 58. It's kind of like the thesis for the whole chapter. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. So he's going to tell them their sin, okay? What is their sin? He says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Now, at first reading, that's a little confusing, right? Because we've already been set up with the, the idea that we're going to hear what their sins are, um, and yet the things that he talks about are not sins. They're, they're good things. They seek him daily. They delight to know his ways. They, they ask about his righteous judgments. Those things are not a sin. So how is he talking about sin here? Well, pay attention to the phrase, uh, I think it's in, uh, what verse is that? I think it's in verse 2. Look at the phrase where it says, as if, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. They do all these things as if they were, the, the argument being they're not. They're not really a nation that does righteousness. They're not really a nation that seeks my ways and does all these things. Um, and so what he's kind of getting at is, yes, they do kind of have an external worship of God. There is a sense in which if you were to look at Israel, the nations around them were to look at them, it'd go like, wow, these people are really serious about their worship, right? Look at this righteous nation worshiping their God. God says, yeah, but they're not really a righteous nation. It's, it's external and it's deficient. And that's kind of the thesis for chapter 58. And he goes on to talk about other areas of worship, not just the Sabbath, like he critiques fasting as well, okay? Well, we see some of these external exercises of worship in this chapter. Let's look. It says in verse 3, <clears throat> these are the people complaining. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God's response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like, like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So they're, they're kind of fasting, but they're also missing the whole point. Um, they are fighting um, they're, they're doing all kinds of quarreling. There's wickedness there instead of a, a heart of humility. Um, they're also seeking after their, their own pleasures, he talks about, their own desires, when really fasting is, is putting off those things, right? 
Um, it's going away from what you think, what your body wants, food and water. Um, so there's this external fasting, but they're missing the big point, okay? We see this also um, when we come to the Sabbath. Um, but even here, it's not just a mere external keeping of the Sabbath that's the problem where the internal is missing. There, there is a deficiency also in, in how they keep this as well, just like the fasting, I would say. It comes down particularly to how we understand the phrase, your pleasure. What is God critiquing when he says, you seek your pleasure on the Lord's day? That's really the battleground of this whole passage. Some have argued that pleasure here, the word hafetz in Hebrew, should actually be understood in terms of business. Business, kind of funny. Business or pleasure? Why, do you, why are you traveling? Um, and not just business in a general sense, but particularly in the sense of like, uh, you're doing work, there's transactions, there's money. If, if you all spoke Spanish, I would say negocios, like you can hear the word negotiations there, right? I'm doing business. Um, some people argue that that's how it should be understood. Now, even our own word business, I think we have to keep in mind in English, can mean that, but it can also be broader, right? Like if, if, if your child were to ever say to you, you know, who, it would be the death, there would be, you'd have to call the mortician after. If they were to say, mind your own business, get out of my business. They're not saying like, stop looking at my accounting books. This is my, I am the CEO of this, right? Some of them might be saying that, maybe they will one day. But they mean like, my business, my life, my things that I do, get out of that, right? Some people, however, argue that when it says business here, it's a more specific meaning, kind of like business and work and transactions, okay? And so they would say, look, when this says pleasures here, it's not forbidding like recreational pleasures. It's just forbidding what the Sabbath elsewhere forbids, which is work, right? They find support for this in verse 3, where you have the word hafetz, or it's translated pleasure in the ESV, but it's coupled together with the oppression of workers. So if you look at verse 3, it says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, your own hafetz, and oppress all your workers. Well, I guess you could see how that would make a connection if you understood it as business. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own business and oppress all your workers. Like workers and business, that tends to go together, right? So some people argue this is not forbidding recreations, um, but really just the normal prohibitions of the Sabbath. I think the issue with that is I don't think that's really how hafetz should be taken here um, as business, at least not in the strict sense of like money and transactions and closing deals and all that stuff. Um, the word hafetz most commonly does mean pleasure or delight. It's kind of what it means. Pleasure or delight can refer to, there's verses, and the young man delighted in the woman. He, he liked her. He thought she was beautiful. He was attracted to her. It can simply mean to, to really like love someone in close, uh, close relationship. So for example, Jonathan is said to have delighted in David, right? It can mean, especially with God, to have his favor. 
that he delights in you, right? But another way that it's used, and this is how I think it's used here, is to speak not of someone's pleasure in the sense of like enjoyment, but their will and their choice. Like, what is your will, me lord, you could say, right? That, that kind of a will, right? For example, Eli's wicked sons, they're put to death. It says in 1 Samuel 2, they would not heed their father's rebuke, quote, for it was the will, hafetz, of the Lord to put them to death. Now, you could translate that as the desire of the Lord or his, you know, even when we speak of like someone's will, we might, someone might say to a king, what is, what is your good pleasure, right? It's, but we mean your will, not necessarily you're taking enjoyment in this thing, but, but this is your will. Similarly, in 2 Samuel 24, 3, David wants to sinfully take a census of the people of Israel. And although his commander, Joab, is normally not a moral man, he has cautions. And he says, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. But why does my Lord the King take delight in this thing? Maybe more plainly, we might say, as the NIV does, why does my Lord want to do such a thing? Why is this your choice? Where, why is this what you want? And so in that sense, it can mean your, your will, your choice, what you want, not just like desires. I think that, that has more of this idea of like enjoyment or something. Well, I would say that along those lines is how we should understand hafetz in Isaiah 58. That when it says that they turn aside from doing their pleasure, or um, from the Lord's day to do their pleasure, it means they turn aside to do their will. They do what they want to do, and that's what they delight in, right? It could mean recreations. It could mean business. It's really much broader than that. What it is really is your will. This is confirmed by the later phrase in verse 13, quote, not going your own ways. There, your ways and your pleasure kind of go along with one another. Your ways are like someone's life, how you live your life. Um, the, we, we read in the Old Testament of the ways of the Lord, right? His will, what he delights in, um, who he is. The ways of a person are their will, what they do, what they delight in. It goes hand in hand here with your pleasure, Interestingly, this is confirmed by the Vulgate and the Septuagint. The Vulgate translates it as your will in Latin. You go doing your will on the Sabbath. The Septuagint translates it the same way. It could mean your will, um, or it could mean a little bit more woodenly, the things you wish to do. It amounts essentially to the same thing. And so really, the word is talking about not so much pleasure strictly in the sense of recreations, nor business in the sense of working on the Sabbath, but really the distinction is between doing one's own will on the Sabbath as opposed to God's. One author, Lane Keister, he has a very good article on this, and I, was, I found it very helpful. He says, in the passage itself, the contrast is not between doing business or not doing business, but between delight in your own things versus delight in the Lord, verse 14. E.J. Young, another scholar, says, It is the pleasure of man in contrast to that of God that is brought to the fore. 
Another writer, Alex Montier, says, the determining factor is whether this or that activity defiles or honors the holiness of the day. Whether it is a mere indulgence of personal pleasure, doing as you please, or preference, going your own way, or whether it conduces to sweet delight and his ordinances. Really, what this is getting at is kind of just the larger picture we've seen of the Sabbath. The purpose of it, as we said, the question is not really work or not work, recreations or not recreations. It's worshiping and delighting in God and anything that gets in the way, right? Whether it is recreation or work. Lane Keister says, On what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath, rather than asking about a specific activity as to whether or not it is lawful, it is more helpful to remember that the rest in view is not simply physical rest, but rather a rest of worshiping the Lord. He says, therefore, if the activity is conducive to worship, then it is lawful, okay? So again, not, not the most important verse, I don't think, in terms of, of the Sabbath. Um, you'll find it often cited. Um, I do think in a broader sense, it, it does prohibit unnecessary recreations. I, don't, I wouldn't take pleasures to strictly refer to like games and pastimes, um, but I think it can be encompassed in that, just like work can be. Whatever is drawing your heart away from worshiping God, then that's what it's talking about. Really? Okay. Um, okay, any questions on that verse before we move on? Makes sense? Complaints? Okay, all right. All right, well, now let's turn and ask the more practical question. Okay, Pastor, we've heard these lectures now about the Lord's Day. It's our duty to keep it all the day, to put off work and, none, and, and unnecessary recreations. From a practical perspective, what does that look like? And that's what we really want to try to answer today. The answer to that question, however, somewhat depends on your circumstances and in several different regards. It's going to look different on several factors, okay? For example, does your church have one or two services on the Lord's Day? Well, that's going to be a contributing factor um, to how you organize your other time, right? You have other ways that you might be able to spend on the Lord's Day that you might not if you're going back for evening service. That's one of them, right? Um, does your church do a potluck or a small group or things like that? That too, it may not seem like a lot, but maybe that's like an hour and a half or something, right? That, and, if you're bound, and, and let's say you have to go back in the evening for worship and there's naps and all that for kids. Well, you have to take that into consideration. Next, if you're married, right? Even if you don't have kids, you still have family worship. If you're a single guy or a single girl, um, you may live alone. You don't really have family worship per se, so that's one duty that you might ha not have to go about, right? If you're married, do you have kids? Kids are a huge determining factor in, in what keeping the Lord's Day uh, will entail, um, determining appropriate and beneficial things to do on the Lord's Day. If it's just you and your wife, it's a lot of other things you can do. Will, you will have so much rest on the Lord's Day, right? Um, if you have kids, you're like, I thank God this is a spiritual rest, right? Um, if it weren't, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, 
But yeah, if your kids are there, also the age range of your kids is going to be big. I can't take Carlos through Pilgrim's Progress right now. He won't have any idea what we're talking about, and he couldn't last through half a page, right? You have to do things. And so all that to say, it's you got to take it on a case-by-case basis, um, and all of them have to be taken into, and what it might look for one family or person in one situation might look different for another, okay? Now, all that to say, for the sake of argument, I am going to pretend that everyone here does go to a church that has morning and evening services, even though we don't, (laughs) and that you're married, and that you all have kids, okay? I know you don't, right? Um, We will talk about that, hopefully, because that's kind of the, the fullest picture, all right? There's a lot of things to juggle if that's your situation, and if you can kind of work that out, if you just take like an evening service out of that, some of that gets a little bit simpler, okay? So we kind of want to look at the most jam-packed, what this would look like, how you might do it, and, and you can kind of reason back from, from, if you're a single person, how you might also keep the Lord's Day, okay? Okay, so you have a family with kids. Your church has a morning and evening service. What do you do on the Lord's Day? Well, the first answer to that is to consider what are the duties of the Lord's Day? These duties are really in three different areas. And this is where I said this will, for the most part, cut across all those considerations and situations. These different areas are public worship, private or family worship, and secret worship. Now, we've seen those three categories all throughout this chapter, and we've talked about them to to a good degree, okay? William Gouge, in his book, The Sabbath Sanctification, which is very good, by the way, It's all written in question and answer form. Um, He says, what are the duties commanded on the Lord's day? To which he gives two answers. Duties of piety and duties of mercy. Now, we're going to first focus really on duties of piety, which are really duties of worship, okay? Of the duties of piety, he says, duties of piety are such as immediately tend to God's honor wherein and whereby he is worshipped, and are such as directly tend to our spiritual edification. Wherefore, the wise Lord, who affordeth us six days for secular and temporal affairs, seeth it fit that every seventh day should be set apart for divine and spiritual matters. So the duties of piety, like on the Lord's Day, when you wake up and you brush your teeth, you should do that. Okay, that's great. He does not consider that a duty of piety, okay? It's not immediately tending towards worshiping God, um, and it's not like that kind of direct connection, though we can say, sure, in a sense, all of life is worship. I get that, but that's not what he's saying, okay? Okay, so what does he mean by works of piety then? What, what are they? He asks, what kinds are the works of piety? What are they specifically? He says they are three, public private, by which he means family, or secret, okay? Public, private, or secret. Now, if you're married and you have kids, all of those are going to apply to you. If you're married and only single, it would only be uh, the first and the last, public and secret, right? No one's going to just have family. So it's, it's the only one that would be added on would be family. First are public duties, 
Those pertain primarily to church worship or to other church events, we would say, such as Sunday school, what you guys are doing right now. Even potlucks afterwards are all public duties. You know, on the one hand, we, we want to emphasize that there is something special about the worship service, right? It is kind of distinct. Um, we typically speak more of the means of grace in a worship service as compared to Sunday school. On the other hand, though, we don't want to make Sunday school nothing. It is a time of teaching. That is part of the ministry of the church. It is, it is beneficial for the soul. And so all those duties together are, are considered under public worship. And we've largely looked at them already throughout this chapter, and I don't want to belabor them, okay? We would only say that uh, perhaps the best way to say it is when it comes to the duties of public worship and in the Lord's Day, be a maximalist, not a minimalist. These are all things for your benefit. Yes, even Sunday school, you get to hear Pastor Ryan rant about whatever he thinks is interesting. I'm sure somewhere in there, there's something beneficial for everyone, right? Um, So come to these things. Don't be late. Be on time. Get as much as you can. Benjamin Keach admonished some, for example, who might be late or neglect coming on on the right time to worship. He says, he speaks of those who, quote, neglect coming into public worship of God on the Lord's day till perhaps near half the duties of worship are over. By this is God provoked, and shame attends our assemblies, and our sacred religion is exposed to reproach. How far do the papists, for zeal in their false religion, outdo many who would be thought the most refined Protestants? How early are they at their devotion on this day, as well as on other days of the week? In some sense, he's saying, you know, it's to our shame when we are minimalists on the Lord's days. Um, Go to a mosque down the street, you'll see they're maximalist. (laughs) They have a false religion. They don't even have the truth, and yet they have more zeal than some, as I like how he says, the most refined Protestants, right? So be Lord's Day maximalists. Take, take full advantage of it, okay? All right, another thing I would say here too um, is on the Lord's Day, we have these three areas. Um, the higher they are, they take precedent over the others, okay? So public, because it's a greater means of grace, takes precedent over family worship. So let's say a church were to say, well, our church has morning and evening services. We go in the morning But then we do other family worship things on the Lord's Day, and we just have family worship in the evening. I would say, well, no, if there's a public worship service at night, that that should really take precedence over family worship, as important as family worship is. Similarly, family worship should take precedence in terms of priority over personal devotions, okay? If there were a time when you were super strapped for time and you have the choice of sitting quietly and doing your devotions and all that, or leading your family in worship, lead your family in worship, right? There, it's a greater means of grace. There's more people involved. And so these, they're, they're not all equal. Some take precedence over the other, okay? All right, those are the duties of public worship. Pretty straightforward. We don't need to really linger over it very much. Let's cover now the next two duties. And really, these are the ones that I think will probably people will ask for more helpful guidance 
um, in because this is the one we all probably need to grow in more, right? And, and it's not quite as clear how we grow about, uh, go about growing in these ways. First, the duties of private or family worship on the Lord's Day. What are the duties of private worship on the Lord's Day? In many ways, it's not all that different from any other day, except I would say on the Lord's Day, there's a few extra things that you might normally do, okay? For example, William Gouge says the private duties of piety on the Lord's Day are, quote, reading God's Word, prayer, catechizing, repeating sermons, holy conference, and singing psalms. Now, of those six things, four of them should normally be done in everyday family worship. And when we talked about family worship, we looked at the directory for private worship, we saw four of those things, right? Um, Reading God's word, prayer, catechism, and the singing of psalms or hymns. That's kind of your basic thing, right? Two of them, however, are extra. And I would say these are a way you can beef up your, your worship on the Lord's day. Okay? Namely, as it says, uh, repeating sermons and holy conference. Repeating of sermons and holy conference. Now, those two go together. And in some ways, they can kind of be the same thing. By repeating of sermons, this is meant not necessarily the reading of a manuscript or like, oh, let's play back the audio of what we heard today. But it's really a calling to mind. It's, it's a remembering not word by word, but the main points of the argument. It's to, to chew on it, to meditate on it, and remember it a little bit more so that you can then go to holy conference. For example, William Perkins says, After thy return from church, revive thy memory with a brief repetition in thy mind of that which thou hast heard before thy sitting down to dinner. And then with thanksgiving receive the blessings of God to thy bodily comfort be mindful to season the same with good and godly talk to the glory of God, the comfort of thy soul, and the edification of those which are about thee. So that's kind of both, but you notice he says, remind yourself of the main points of the sermon, okay? Typically, this would be done by the family when you go home. Even kids would do this. A father might ask his children, Tell me, what, what were the main points of the sermon? What was the sermon about today? Um, what were some of the illustrations, right? Things like that. They're calling them to mind. One author says of, of Puritan kids, young boys and girls were expected to be able to re- repeat sermons, and some were recognized and praised for their abilities, right? So this would be something that the father, uh, the heads of household would take, take the lead role in. What was the sermon about today, kids? Uh, okay, it was in Leviticus something. Okay, what was it about? Um, what was, okay, and he, what did pastors say about this? Okay, you can kind of help them doing it, or help them do it. It can also be a great place for, for clarifying things, right? Well, what did he mean by this? Well, we can talk about that a little bit more, but he meant this, or this means that, right? And what you're doing is you're kind of just recalling all of that. Once you've done it, then you can go into what we call holy conference, which we've talked about before, the practice of conference, which is more more or less corporate meditation 
and you're meditating on a sermon. Uh, let's see. Oh, I thought I had a quote. I didn't have a quote. Uh, okay, basically, it's a, it's a time for drawing things out more. And this, this especially for parents, um, I mean, you'll, <laughs> you know, sometimes in small groups, we don't, we don't always have the best conversations. So parents, you may have to draw some things out but it's asking specific application. Um, let's say there's something about, you know, the mercifulness of God. And you can say, and you know, for those of you kids here, you know, we, your mother and I pray for you. You've not yet, you know, repented and trusted in Christ. Remember what we heard today in our sermon that God always welcomes, like, you, you know what I mean? You're doing things like that. You should let your kids ask questions. Feel free to let them ask Obviously not super silly questions. Um, the other day in family worship and prayer, we said, Carlos, what are some things we can pray for? And he said, um, for all the bellies to be squishy. And we were like, mm, I don't know. First of all, we don't want all the bellies to be squishy. They're already too squishy. Um, that's a problem. But, but, but let it be broad. I mean, it may be something that's a great question that's not even about the sermon, but it may go on a really helpful rabbit trail, you know? So, let the kids um, ask questions and express doubts. Try to answer them from the Word of God. So that's, that's something you can do that's a little bit extra on the Lord's Day in family worship. And it also is really training your kids to listen to sermons. It's going to kind of increase, hopefully, how, how they view of their public duties in worship. And then you're also getting even more out of your public duties, right? So it kind of goes both ways, okay? All right, well, let's talk about secret worship, or what we might call devotions. These also are going to look the same as they do on other days, and we talked about that before, primarily just praying and reading the Word of God, uh, maybe singing of songs, um, but typically it's going to be those two, and, and primarily prayer, I would say. On the Lord's Day, you would do that, but maybe one or two exceptions, a little bit additional as well. For example, William Gouge says that the duties of secret worship on the Lord's Day are reading God's Word, prayer, and then meditation and examining oneself. And I would say especially those last two. I would really just turn it into one, meditation. We don't normally have a lot of time to meditate throughout the week. Even if you're doing your you're reading your Bible, you're praying, there's like a fire happening in the kitchen, and you're like, oh, God, please help me today, give me the Spirit, and you're like, amen, and then you like rush off, right? Not a lot of time to meditate. On the Lord's Day, you're putting things off. One of the great benefits of that is you can do your normal stuff, but also take time for meditation, right? Benjamin Keach, he's summarizing John Owen but he talks about this. He adds his own comments. He says, meditation is a great duty on the Lord's day, as Dr. Owen shows. And this, one, in respect of God himself, whose glory we must make our end in all we do. We ought to meditate on the majesty, greatness, omniscience, and holiness of God in our approaching him in prayer and hearing the word. So meditate on his grandeur. Two, we ought to meditate on Jesus Christ in a peculiar manner as the special author 
of that ordinance in which we approach to Him, prayer, um, worshiping, and come together to celebrate. He says, three, let us meditate upon the glory and excellency of Christ's person and His wonderful love. Meditate on the day itself and its sacred services. These are to be meditated upon and those privileges we are partakers of. On this day, our rest was perfected. For then Christ rose again for our justification and spoke peace to his disciples. And so he doth to us. On this day, we were justified in Christ, accepted in Christ, pardoned in Christ. As in our head and representative, on that very first day, he rose from the dead. Therefore, let faith on this day be exercised. And let us labor for thankful hearts and rejoice with singing on this day, which the Lord hath made to this end. So meditation, um, that's, that's a big part of it, all right? Now, you might say, okay, that's great. How do you meditate? Um, often, if you hear like meditation, you think of someone like saying like om when they're sitting in a certain position and Eastern meditation. Um, I don't know if this is accurate. I've, I have always heard that a good way to compare biblical meditation with like Eastern non-biblical is non-biblical is emptying your mind. Biblical is filling your mind with God's truth, right? Um, whether that's an accurate depiction or not, it's, it's true. That's what biblical meditation is, to meditate and to think upon God's truth. Perhaps you could do that with something you've just read in Scripture, perhaps something you're studying in the Word of God. Perhaps with the sermon, take a moment to really apply it to your own heart. Consider the last week. Consider perhaps moments when you fell into sin. What happened? Why did that happen? Why did my heart do that, right? What, what, was, what was my heart looking for that it should have found in Christ? There are all kinds of ways it can be helpful to meditate. Furthermore, I think it's very helpful if you're, if you're someone like me who can be very scatterbrained to even have something tangible you're meditating on, something you're going through. Um, I think a book can be very good. You can be going through Scripture. Um, it's, we don't necessarily want to make this sharp divide between reading God's Word and meditating. We meditate on God's Word. We meditate on truth. And, and you can really enrich your meditating in that way. Um, you know, I've said before, I think one-year Bible reading plans can be a great thing. I think it might be better, though, if you did maybe one or two books for the whole year. Can you imagine how deep your knowledge of God's Word would go in just a couple years' time? Um, or even just in one book, Man, if you get a good commentary on a book, the things you'll go into will be very deep, and you'll be like, well, there's so much stuff here. Sometimes I think, and I think Sunday can be a great time for that, because you have a little bit more time to maybe sit and read and go deeper into God's Word. You can read books on theology, church history, all kinds of good things. The only thing I would caution is not making this a mere head exercise, because you always want to have reflection with meditation, okay? But I think that those things can be, can be very profitable and can really kind of give meditation wings. And I think that's a great extra to add on the Lord's Day. Well, those are the basic duties, um, but let's now kind of ask some more practical questions. Let's say you have morning and evening services, okay? You wake up, 
everyone gets ready. Let's say you have kids, and we'll say you have little kids too because it just makes it harder. There's breakfast. I would say sometime during that morning, if you're a parent, do your own secret, private, not, okay, we're confusing the words, your own devotions, okay? Not necessarily with meditation at that time. It's probably more of a busier time. You're getting things ready. Um, If you can wake up a little bit earlier before everyone else, that can be really good, okay? If you have kids, you want to make sure everyone wakes up at a decent hour, not too late. This is going to be challenging for us one day when, Lord willing, we go to morning services. We're going to be like, oh, who can worship God at this hour, right? It's going to be challenging. You're going to have to, I mean, hey, if if worship starts at like 1030, right? Okay, let's say Sunday school's at 9. Well, you better be out the door by 8.30. And if you have to be out the door by 8.30 with a bunch of kids, you might need to be up by like 7 or something. And, and this is where preparing the night before really comes into play and, and can be a big help, okay? All right, you get everyone up, you drink your coffee, you do your own normal personal devotions you might do on any other day. You get the kids ready, right? Um, I would say later, what I like to do for meditation time is when the kids are asleep, like towards the end of the night. That's when I do it, okay? You can do it whenever you want, though. So let's say uh, you're done with that. You go to church. You listen to Sunday school. You go to worship service. And let's just say, for sake of argument, there's no potluck or anything else that day. So you're going to be done around 1230, okay? You get home. You eat lunch. Let's say the little kids take a nap. You might take a little rest yourself. You wake up, you have another cup of coffee. The kids wake up maybe by two or three, depending on their age. Of course, if they're really little, right, they need to sleep in more than that. You let them do that. This is where you got to take that stuff into mind. Older kids or even yourself might not need a nap. You may not feel that tired. This is a time then that you can do maybe that meditation time or other kinds of things. Um, You know, you can have... Have the kids, if they don't want to sleep, here's some good things you can read, right? Read this book while the little ones are napping and mommy, mommy and poppy, mommy and daddy, whatever you guys call yourselves, we're going to be reading these things here, okay? Um, all right, so let's say everyone's up, okay? Everyone's up after their nap time, uh, let's say around three-ish, okay? Well, if evening service starts at 6.30, you have three and a half hours, three and a half hours. Some of that is going to have to be spent eating some kind of dinner, probably getting ready again. If you're like me, you put your PJs on as soon as you get back home after the Lord's Day, right? You can't go to evening service in your PJs. So some time will have to be allotted for getting ready and for driving back to church. But you do have a good chunk of time, and I would say this is probably when you should do family worship. This is when you're going to do your normal family worship, And you're also going to be doing the repeating of the sermon and the discussion afterwards. Um, It doesn't have to be this super long thing. And sometimes, you know, it's going to depend on the age of your kids, their own disposition. It may feel like for a while you're kind of pulling teeth. That's okay. Don't be like, we are going to have holy conference because the Puritans had holy conference. Like, don't, don't make it a bummer, okay? It may take five, it may take 30 minutes, depending on the day, whatever, right? 
let's say a maximum amount of time it takes 30 minutes, and you still have a couple hours or something until evening service, you might do other things. And here I'd say we have a lot of other freedom. Um, you could read a chapter from Pilgrim's Progress. You could watch a movie or a video uh, that tells some kind of stories of Bible or church history. Uh, there's a lot of good things for younger kids, so you have to be careful with some of it. Um, but there's still a lot of good things. For older kids, um, I know Pastor Jason has told me he had his family on the Lord's Day would watch. There's a DVD series called Dispatches. It's about missions. Have you guys ever heard of that? It's pretty cool. It's this guy. I don't know what, who he's associated with, but he, he goes throughout the world and kind of does, it's like a traveling show, but a guy visits missionaries and underground churches. It's pretty cool. You can do things like that. That's super profitable, and it's kind of chill. You can get popcorn, and you know what I mean? You can have fun as you're doing it. There's games that you could play. There's catechizing games. There's memorization games. There's all kinds of fun Bible games you could play, and this would be a great time for that as well, okay? So let's say the time is complete. You have time to eat dinner. Everybody gets ready for church. You go to church. You go, and then you come back. There might be a brief discussion of the sermon at this time. I'm thinking for the most part, by the time you're getting back, your public duties are done for the day. Mostly family worship is done, and you're getting everyone ready for bed, okay? After they go for bed to bed, this is for me <laughs> more when I do the secret personal devotions. I have, there's more freedom to read. Um, that's probably going to be the case for, for a lot of you guys too. This would always also be a good time um, when you could maybe, if you're married, just pray with your spouse. You know, a lot of times in family worship, it tends to be very kid-oriented um, in prayer requests and things. And there's just some things you're not going to maybe express in family worship because they're not things you would say in front of the kids, right? Um, this would be a good time to have a, a mini family worship, but just with your wife. Um, Annika and I typically do that, and we'll even look to the week ahead. What are some things we can pray for for this week? How can we pray? I think that's a great way you could do it. Um, there's a lot of freedom in how this goes, but those are kind of the basic three duties, public, private, and secret. Um, there's a lot of factors into, into what constitutes what, which you could ask me other questions later, but that for the most part is it. And with that, we have wrapped up chapter 22.